Hey, Love Tribe. Today's episode is brought to you by one of my personal favorites, Cozy Earth. They've got something special for all the mothers out there. So anyone who wants to shower the special woman in their lives with love and the comfort they deserve, listen up. Hands down, Cozy Earth has the best sheets, bedding, pajama sets, and more. So today, I'm excited to share that Relationship Advice listeners get an exclusive 35% off discount. Simply go to CozyEarth.com and use the promo code I do at checkout. The first time I tried their bamboo sheets, I was blown away. The comfort level is insane. I just love slipping into their seriously soft and cool sheets after a long day. And for a mom who knows that the struggle of sleep deprivation is real, Cozy Earth's temperature regulating technology has been a lifesaver. No more waking up sweating or freezing. But what really sold me is the quality of the bamboo sheets. They are by far the most comfortable sheets I have ever slept in. They are made to last years, which they have. I think at this point, I have about six sets of them. And they have a 100-night sleep-free trial and a 10-year warranty. So you know you're getting something that is going to stick around. So if you're ready to prioritize your sleep health and treat yourself or the mom in your life to the luxury she deserves, head on over to CozyEarth.com and use the promo code IDO for an exclusive 35% off. Because every mom deserves a good night's sleep, and with Cozy Earth, you can finally get the rest you need. Let's talk about a struggle many of us know all too well losing weight. Remember those days when everyone was on a juice cleanse or just basically hangry all the time? That was no fun for anyone. Well, there's a better, more sustainable way to shed those pounds. Today, I want to introduce you to Row Body. It's not your typical weight loss program. Instead of all the gimmicks, they offer access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market. But here's the real deal. They pair these shots with simple lifestyle changes, helping you lose 15 to 20% of your weight in a year on average and actually keep it off. Plus, over 200,000 people have already seen results with Robody. So what sets Robody apart? The support. They handle all the insurance stuff for you and give you access to a provider whenever you need them. And the best part, you can sign up online from home, no doctor's appointments and no waiting rooms. Say goodbye to those days of hangry juice cleanses. With Robody, losing weight is straightforward and sustainable. Take that first step today and say hello to a healthier, happier you. Kickstart your weight loss journey the right way and head to ro.co slash do. That's ro.co slash I-D-O. Sign up today for just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Remember, medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash I do. What's going on, guys? Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you're having a wonderful day and thank you for tuning in. Good on you for taking the time to improve yourself, improve your relationship by getting this great advice that uh, we're just happy to pass along because we're not doling it out. We're just interviewing great guests like guests today, Dr. Wednesday Martin. And Dr. Wednesday Martin has recently written a book called Untrue, Why Nearly Everything We Believe About Women, Lust, and Infidelity is Untrue and How the New Science Can Set Us Free. And Dr. Wednesday Martin is also a number one New York Times bestselling author. And this book was listed as Kirkus Review's best nonfiction book of 2018. So in today's episode, we'll be talking about her book and all about that new science to set us free. So we hope you guys enjoy today's episode. Thank you for listening as always and for giving us those five-star reviews. Uh, We love you guys so much and enjoy. 
Wednesday. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks, Sarah. And thanks, Chase. Uh, Thanks to you both for having me. Wednesday, we've given our listeners a little overview, told them about your new book, Untrue. We'd like to start the show with having you tell us and our listeners why you enjoy helping people improve their relationships. I think there's no higher calling than helping people feel more connected. And in order to do that, I think people have to understand themselves really well. So my mandate in every book I've written has been to give people, especially women, permission to feel a little bit more comfortable in their own skin and to use data to show women who might feel that there's something wrong with them, uh, that the range of normal is wider than they might have imagined um, and that they're probably very normal. We love that. And and that's a large premise of your latest book is that everything that we thought we understood about female sexuality is untrue. And, and it's an important thing to, to understand for both sexes. And obviously it's focused on females and female sexuality, but uh, Men need to hear it too, yes, right? Yeah. Exactly. So why don't we dive in and start with what led you to write this book? A little bit of your personal story in wanting to write this, and then we'll talk about some of the discoveries. Thanks. Love to. So um, one thing, and I've said this before in interviews, but it bears repeating. One of the reasons I wrote this book is I was such a catastrophe at monogamy um, in my 20s and until I got married. And I just thought, wow, something's really wrong with me. You know, I will meet somebody and really love that person. You know, we have great sex. We have a great connection. Everything's great. And then after a year or so, um, I would find myself thinking, I'm not so interested in this person sexually anymore. And even though on paper, the person was great and I really liked the person. And so I would be interested in somebody else and I would follow through on it. And I didn't always end things before I began other things. And there were just scenes and tears and drama. And, you know, I felt very bad um, about myself for doing it. Um, And a couple of times I tried, you know, I would talk to my gay male friends and they would say, honey, just tell the guy you're with that you like him, but you're not into monogamy. Um, So I tried that once and it really went over so badly. Um, It wasn't a thing for straight people at that time um, when I was in my 20s to be non-monogamous. It really wasn't part of the cultural conversation. And the, the time or two that I tried it, it went over really poorly. So I thought, right, okay, so I can't do that. Um, so. Really, it comes from a very personal struggle that I had. Then later, you know, having a background in social science and and writing through the lens of anthropology and primatology and sociology, and that's my lens on the world, I realized all this great new research was coming out about female sexuality. And reading it, I really felt such a profound sense of relief and recognition. This is me. This is my girlfriends. This is the women that I've spoken to. This describes our conundrums and reframes us as really very normal. Um, So all that kind of came together. Um, you know, when I decided to write on true and I thought, Ooh, you know, I've kind of made a career writing about women we love to hate. I wrote about stepmothers for my book, Stepmonster. I wrote about uh, rich mommies on the Upper East Side for my book, Primates at Park Avenue. And, you know, I thought, wow, this really brings it all together. You know, writing about women that we have all this hostility toward. Why don't I write about women who struggle with monogamy now and use all this delicious science in my own personal story? So that was a very long answer to your question, but there you have it. Well, thank you for sharing that. And we think it's so interesting. I love this intersection of biology and culture and and sexuality and how a lot of times the cultural societal conversation implications shape how we feel about ourselves like in in your circumstance where you didn't feel like you wanted to be in this relationship and it, it seems like you're 
you felt like you were doing the wrong thing. And, and then this research is showing that it's actually okay. And almost like giving yourself and now the readers of your book permission to have these feelings and that it's actually quite natural. Yeah, that's a term I like to use a lot that I want to give men and women and people permission to feel comfortable in their skin. I really do want to use science and data to set people free. And it was so funny when I was interviewing women for this book, I interviewed um, 30 women, 31 experts from many, many different fields, everybody from medicine to sociology to primatology. Um, But I also interviewed 30 women between the ages... um, of, um, you know, women, young women up to the age of 93 who had, uh, who talked to me about um, their relationship to monogamy. Almost all of them had a really difficult relationship to monogamy. Many of them had, quote, cheated in quotation marks, the term I don't like, and others were openly non-monogamous. And what every single one of them said to me when we started to talk was, well, you probably don't want to interview me because I'm really unusual. And I would say, well, what's unusual about you? And they would say, well, I have a pretty strong libido. Uh, and also monogamy is really hard for me. So I don't know. It's probably going to like basically mess up your, your, your research to talk to me. Basically, they were all implying that they were unicorns. Hey, like when 30 out of 30 women identify as unicorns, you know they're not. And you know that we have to reconsider normal. And I already had looked at the data and was able to tell a lot of them, listen, there are these two big sacred cows um, in our society about female sexuality. The first one is that women are supposed to have and do have lower libidos than men. But recent research shows that that is untrue. Um, And the second big sacred cow is based on the first one. Yeah, women are naturally more monogamous than men. They naturally tend towards sexual exclusivity. Uh, Men are from promiscuous and women are from monogamous. And new sex research in primatology and anthropology is showing us that that's also untrue. So our two foundational beliefs about who women and men are, not just sexually, but who they are as people, um, those two big foundational beliefs have been refuted by science and social science recently. But if we don't tell people, they won't know and they'll keep living these lies and they'll keep suffering. So it was important to me to cross that science and social science over. And I'm happy to talk about it in more detail too. Yeah, we would love that. And then also, I would love to know, like, how do we change that dialogue in society so that women aren't feeling um, afraid or they think they're the unicorn because they're different? Yeah. And unicorn is such a like flattering term for it. Like mostly, I think that so many women and a fair number of men, too, just feel really sexually weird in their skin. And they shouldn't. Um, So one of the big findings that really fascinated me uh, was about libido. You know, I'm a child of the 70s, so I was raised on second wave and then third and fourth fourth wave feminism, Um, sort of in part of my upbringing. Second wave feminism was a big part of my upbringing. And, you know, second wave feminism, a lot of it was about undoing myths and lies about women. And a big part of second wave feminism was about female sexuality and saying that the personal was political. And we had books like Our Bodies Ourselves and My Secret Garden by Nancy Friday. And, you know, Jermaine Greer wrote about female sexuality and and lots of people were just scratching the surface. Um, and And then it was almost like we forgot that over the decades and we started focusing more, um, on, Very important issues like um, identity, professionalization, um, you know, topics that were also very important, but uh, reproductive rights, so, so important. And it was almost like sexuality got shunted off to the side and sexuality became a separate thing from feminism. So I just wanted to give that background as a way of explaining that when I got my hands on this research that the sacred cow 
that the female libido is weaker than the male libido was being assailed, it really reminded me of my childhood when second wave feminists were saying, hold on, let's not make this really easy assumption. Okay, so what what happened uh, was that in the early 2000s, a sex researcher named Rosemary Basson came onto the scene and she said, you guys, we've only been when really measuring um, libido and desire one way, right? We've been looking at this thing called spontaneous desire. And spontaneous desire is when just suddenly you just want to have sex. And she said, sure, when we measure only spontaneous desire, um, it seems like men uh, have much stronger libidos than women. But she said, I'm seeing this other desire style. I'm going to call it triggered or responsive desire. She said, not all desire is like this Masters and Johnson's model, um, which is linear and straightforward. And, you know, you go from point A to point Z, from like arousal to, to orgasm. She said, it's not exactly how it goes for everybody, particularly women. She said, sometimes what I'm seeing is that women especially um, will not be interested in sex or not thinking about sex. And then something triggers their desire. Maybe somebody brushes their arm. Maybe they start making out with somebody and that um, gets them interested in having sex. Maybe somebody just gives them a lustful glance on the street then they're interested. And she said, this is what we're going to call triggered or responsive desire. And if we measure that, differences between male and female libido will not seem so dramatic at all. And in fact, when I was recently at the Society for Sex Therapy and Researchers annual conference, um, it was in Toronto this year, a sex researcher uh, named Meredith Chivers, her all-female team, presented a really exciting study that they had done in which they had developed a measure uh, so that we could measure um, responsive or triggered desire. So we're making so many inroads into understanding that this really simple, oversimplified idea we had, that men are like these ever-ready energizer bunnies of libido and women are you know those sort of weaker less interested in sex sex that presumption is falling apart at this moment which is really exciting and I think it's really going to set a lot of people at ease you know Sarah Hunter Murray is a sex researcher who's working on the on the fact that we've really profiled men with bad science and we've really stereotyped men when we say that they always want to have sex. Um, they don't. They have normal um, ebbs and flows of their sexual desire. And plenty of women are more interested in sex than their male or female partners. Um, so I think that as we complicate this really facile assumption that the male libido is stronger than the female libido, people are really going to feel set free. And other people who have been very invested in that um, oversimplification are going to feel threatened and pushed back. But that's the way progress goes. Um, so I find that research really exciting, as well as the research about monogamy. Yeah, the important thing is to be having this conversation, to have the science uh, in hand, to, the research is being done, and then have people like yourselves making it more accessible to the public writing your book. And then we love just being able to talk to you, uh, not only for our own relationship, but, you know, for our <laughs> listeners. And we actually had Sarah on the show a couple episodes ago. Uh, I that know, was she's so great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She and, is. and like you said, it's not just about female sexuality, but there's a lot of misconceptions about men's sexuality. Exactly. And you know what I like to say, Chase? When we misrepresent female sexuality, we're not just profiling and stereotyping women. We're profiling and stereotyping men. So when we mis misrepresent female sexuality, we're re misrepresenting sexuality across the board and nobody benefits from it. Um, so I'm glad you guys are getting the word out and I'm glad Sarah is. And you know, one of the things that she talks about is the many reasons um, that men don't wanna have sex. And 
People might say, oh, yeah, maybe because they're feeling sick. Yes, that's one of the reasons men sometimes don't want to have sex. But sometimes they don't want to have sex because they don't feel connected to their partner. They just had an argument or they're feeling with their partner or they're feeling insecure. Um, So as you know from talking to Sarah, she really gets into sort of um, quantifying and, and qualifying what it is that goes into um, men experiencing sometimes lower desire. Uh, And when we tell men and women that nobody's going to feel like, Ooh, it's so weird that I want sex more or less uh, than my partner does. And I think another big intervention to be made, and I consider it the final frontier is we really have to make a strong intervention into this assumption that monogamy is easier for women. I looked at many, many studies, um, very, very well-designed longitudinal studies. And what you see in them over and over again, uh, whether it's Marta Miana's work um, with women um, at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where she talks to women who experience low desire in their marriages and are distressed by it, Uh, whether it's a well-designed study of over 2,000 Finnish women by Annika Gunst, whether it's a study of over 11,000 British adults by Cynthia Graham or Kristen Mark's Good in Bed Studies, or another study that Sarah Hunter-Murray did um, with her colleague, Dr. Milhausen, where they looked at undergraduates about over 150 undergraduates, what these studies find again and again and again is that cohabiting and long-term sexual exclusivity dampen the female libido fundamentally in ways that they do not the male libido. And when I first started to see this, I couldn't believe my eyes. I couldn't believe that the data are out there that monogamy in general is a tighter shoe for women than it is for men. And people have said this, not only has Marta Miana said that it's harder for women to want the sex they can have than it is for men. Esther Perel, who has a big crossover audience, has said the same thing. And yet we're still so resistant to this idea uh, that that women struggle with monogamy probably more than men do, Um, even though therapists know it and studies show it, um, that it just illustrates to me how invested we are in our stereotypes about men and women. And I feel like the monogamy stereotype is the one that's going to be the hardest to knock down. So for a listener who is is hearing this and they're like, wow, I'm totally relating like this is me. I've been in a long term monogamous relationship and my libido is down and I don't know how to talk to my partner. Like, how, where do they take it from there? Let's take a quick break to talk about our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Babbel. We've told you about it in past episodes and hopefully you're practicing that second language already. But if you're not, download the Babbel app. It's the number one selling language learning app in the world that will help you speak a new language with confidence. Not only can you learn Spanish, but you can also learn French, Italian, German, Russian, Swedish, and more. Babbel's short 10 to 15 minute lessons are available on the app or online and are designed to quickly get you speaking your new language within weeks. And I can definitely vouch for that because that's a busy full-time working mom. It allows me to learn a new language within a short period of time. And I don't have to dedicate hours and hours every day to working on my Spanish. So try Babbel for free. You have nothing to lose. Everything to gain. Everything to gain. (laughs) Go to Babbel.com or download the app and try it for free. That's Babbel. B-A-B-B-E-L dot com or download the app to try it for free. Babbel, speak a new language with confidence. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Our guests often recommend their favorite relationship audiobooks during the interviews, and there's no better way to listen and work on your relationship than Audible. 
Audible has the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet, including bestsellers, motivation, mysteries, thrillers, memoirs, and of course, relationship help books and more. Audible members get more than ever before. Each month, you'll get three titles of your choice, one audiobook and two Audible originals that you can't hear anywhere else. Plus, members get unlimited access to more than 100 audio-guided fitness and meditation programs. Start listening with a 30-day Audible trial, and your first audiobook plus two Audible originals are free. Visit audible.com slash I do or text I do to 500-500. Get your 30-day Audible trial by visiting audible.com slash I do or text I do to 500-500. Okay, great. So as you know, Probably psychoeducation is one of the most powerful tools we can give people. Just letting them know what the information is and helping them use it in a conversation is a great start. So I like to tell people when people say, how do I have this conversation? And so many women say this to me. So many women, here's what tends to happen usually, you guys. What we know from these longitudinal studies some of which I ticked off the names of, is that it is normal for a woman uh, within the first three years of relationship to experience a big drop in sexual desire. Even if she likes her partner, even if she's happy with her partnership, it's normal for her to experience a big drop in desire. Whereas Male desire, we're talking about heterosexuals now, but we also know that a drop in desire um, occurs to women in relationships with women as well. Um, But what we know is that male desire tends to ebb more slowly over a longer period of time. In some of these studies that I mentioned, men after nine years or even 12 years in a relationship are not experiencing a drop in desire whereas women are within the first three years. So monogamy is really rough on women in ways that it isn't for men. Here's what tends to happen. Nobody has told women this. So they they experience this completely normal drop in desire between years one and three, and they say, oh, wait a second. I'm not feeling sexually attracted to this person. Something's wrong with me, or something's wrong with this relationship or something's wrong with my partner is what they tend to think, right? Instead of thinking, oh, okay, this is that thing that happens. I'm a normal woman being a normal woman. They pathologize themselves, their partner, or their relationship. Here's the second thing that tends to happen. They think, well, I better keep the peace in my relationship. I better keep trying. And they start having sex with their partner, even though after this one to three year drop, they don't want to have it. And then it becomes a habit. And instead of having sex for pleasure, and instead of thinking I'm a woman, so I need some variety and novelty and adventure, that's normal. They start having what sex researchers call service sex. And I've written about service sex and how it bedevils a lot of heterosexual long-term relationships. We have to look more closely uh, at what happens to women having relationships with women. But we know that service sex all too often is happening in long-term heterosexual relationships because women are saying, I better keep the peace. I better have sex just so that we don't have an argument. Men need sex more than women do. So let me do this. Okay. Then we get the impression Oh my gosh, everything I've heard is true. My partner, my male partner wants to have sex, but I don't. I guess I'm a typical woman. I don't like sex as much as my male partner does. No, we need to make the intervention right there and here and now. It's not that you don't like sex. It's that you're a normal woman being a normal woman. And after one to three years, Because you're normal, you're struggling more with this idea of having sex with the same person over and over again, most likely, than your male partner is. Imagine how we could help people and relationships if we gave people this information. 
That's why I like to say that psychoeducation is the most important piece here. This could be so life-altering for women. And it has been. I hear from so many women who say to me, oh my God, I'm in tears. I'm reading your book. I had no idea that this was normal. All the data are out there. We just needed to cross it over and to shift this paradigm that monogamy is easier for women and that there's something wrong with women who struggle with it. There isn't. And to the people who say, right, nobody likes monogamy. It's really hard for everybody. I am here to say the data tell us that in the aggregate, it is harder for women. Chew on that and let's deal with it. It's a powerful thing, information, right? And and that's, to me, what you're saying is, is getting this information out there because we've had not only, I mean, the wrong information, but just a lack of, you know, in a patriarchal society, if men are doing the research most of the time and they're going to slant a certain way and we have all this untrue information. So just people hearing this and then they can apply that to their individual lives and just open up their their options, their thinking, open up to their partner. Yeah. And they have lots of options to your point, Chase. I think you're so right. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, please. Okay. Sorry about that. What I wanted to say is I think that you make such a good point, first of all, about the um, lens, like a biased lens. So many male sex researchers are great people who want the best things for men and women, and they're not trying to be biased or unfair, but what had to happen is that when women entered these different fields, when they went into primatology, when they went into anthropology, and when they went into sex research, I like to say that sex researchers are currently a female dominant species um, (laughs) because so many women are sex researchers now. So many people studying sex are women, which is great. But what happens when women enter um, a particular science or social science field, is that they bring different forms of empathy and curiosity and compassion to their scientific inquiry. Um, And they, in that way, they round out the science. They bring another, not just another way of seeing, but they bring new forms of curiosity. And that doesn't make the science better for women or give it a female slant. It just improves the science, right? In the same way, we need more people of color, um, you know, entering these fields and we need to be getting the work at more and, and people of different orientations and preferences. And that will keep improving the science. But I think you're right. And I would just say that, you know, men weren't intentionally misrepresenting female sexuality. Um, We just needed um, a different perspective and female researchers have brought that. Um, So I think that I couldn't agree with you more um, about that point and about getting this information into people's hands. I wrote a piece for The Atlantic called Women, the Board Sex, um, about how women struggle with monogamy in the aggregate more than men do. Yes, there are exceptions. Um, And yes, we're flexible sexually and socially, so we can thrive with monogamy. But when I wrote that piece, I really have never had at the same time more people reaching out to say, this absolutely resonates with me, and at the same time, more resistance. And I think that's what happens when you kind of mess with the culture's master narrative, um, which currently is women are the ones who can get pregnant. So they're very choosy and coy and men just like to spread their seed everywhere. So they're dogs. Mess with that at your peril. And yet you will find that so many people um, are not living those cliches. Um, and the research is, you know, really describing their experience. So we just have to keep getting the information into their hands. It's one of the great things about today and about doing this podcast and having people like yourself on. And I've benefited and Sarah has benefited of just having this information and then being like, it just opens up, like like you said, some of the readers writing to you, it opens up this whole other world of like, we're told a certain cultural narrative about a lot of things. 
and yeah. sexuality being in relationship being a huge part of all of our lives. And the man is supposed to have sexual desire and chase after the woman, like all these cliches, <laughs> right? And you could just go down the list. There's there's hundreds. And the reality is, is they don't, a lot of times they're cultural and they're not there for, for lack of a better description, like the right reasons. Like uh, it could be for power and to, to suppress women. And if we have, you know, if they have the power of sexuality, but if, if we can sort of tell a different narrative, then that's better for men. And, and this new research and, and podcasts and the internet and all this information that's getting out there is changing the cultural narrative. And it feels like there's this kind of a groundswell in a lot of different areas, but sexuality with your book, with a few years ago, with Sex at Dawn, this is a similar yeah. kind of revelation. Chris, I'm, laughing. I'm laughing because Chris is a good friend of mine. I, I love Sex at Dawn. I think he and Casilda did a great job. Yeah. And, and I loved reading that. I was an anthropology major for this reason. I just love understanding why we are the way we are. And it's not always a linear A to B. It's it's complicated, obviously, but our biology tells a certain story, but we're also very much influenced by our culture that we live in. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I think the one of the most fascinating things about studying sexuality is that it's one of the best examples of a biosocial behavior and, and a behavior with biosocial underpinnings, right? And when I was an undergraduate, maybe when you were too, I don't know, we used to talk, you know, it was the last gasp of the nature-nurture debate. And we don't have that debate anymore. We know that our sexuality, I like to say that female sexuality happens at the confluence of the of the clitoris and the culture. Um, not all of us who identify as female have a clit, but you know, just to um, have like a kind of handy way to say it, to express that female sexuality is a mashup of, of both of those things, um, the cultural and the biological. And we can't underplay uh, the importance of either of those. And in our true, I look at female sexuality in a lot of different cultures, like among the Himba of Namibia or among um, swingers and people who are into hot wiping um, or, you know, it, the, among the Kung, some traditional hunter-gatherers. Um, and I, what I want to show always is that our sexuality is a biological thing, but uh, female sexuality in particular is fascinating to study because there's so much variation from culture to culture. Among the Himba, nobody bats an eye about women um, being pregnant by a man who they're not married to when they're married. And in our culture, um, a woman could very likely experience physical violence and even be killed um, for becoming pregnant um, by a man who's not her husband when she's married. So there's there's so much variation there. And I just wanted to say one other thing um, when we're talking about the power of psychoeducation. I think it's great because not only are you guys and podcasters getting out these studies and this information and these truths about sexuality. But I think what you're also doing is helping people uh, understand how other people have dealt with these conundrums and options. I mean, a lot of people um, might be struggling with monogamy and they'll say, oh my God, wait, there are these longitudinal studies about women struggling with monogamy. Let's talk about this. And then not only do they have access to that, but they also have access to a whole world of people who are creatively trying to resolve this issue. Some people will want to resolve it by remaining monogamous, but finding uh, the female partner or partners, um, the variety and novelty and sexual adventure that they need within monogamy. Other people now know, as perhaps never before, about alternatives. Um, what can you do if you want to stay in a committed relationship, um, but maybe not be monogamous? What are your options there? Or what if you don't want to be um, in a long-term relationship? Um, so thanks to this, this new space is opening up. I think people feel they have more information, but they also feel they have more options. So thank you for that. 
Well, I think that's the one reason that we keep doing this and the message that we want our listeners to understand is that you do have options and it's not a one size fits all package for every single person. So understanding that there are different options out there for each individual is really the most important thing I think someone can understand or or take away from this. Oh my God, I just want women to understand that if it is safe for them, and for many women, it is not, and we really have to acknowledge this and change this. For many women, talking about monogamy even could have lethal consequences. Um, But for those of us who are privileged enough to be able to have the conversation, I really want women to feel entitled to have the conversation. I hear, I have heard from hundreds of women who told me that they got married without even having a conversation about monogamy. Because as with me, when I was in my 20s, it just wasn't part of the vocabulary. It wasn't on the table. It wasn't something you could have a discussion about. And I like the way our culture is moving in a direction where there's now going to be a, we can have conversations about monogamy. And I like to say to people, if you want to have a conversation about monogamy and it's physically safe for you to do so, and you want to do it, but you don't know how to do it, blame it on somebody else. I always say, blame it on me. Say you heard me talking and share what you heard me say or, you know, share what you read in Untrue or Sex at Dawn or The Ethical Slut or whatever. But a good way to start these conversations is to triangulate them by pinning, starting to pin the conversation on somebody else. I heard this podcast today and this woman was saying or this person was saying, and what do you think of that? That can be a really good way to get a conversation going. And what we know um, from the research of somebody like, say, Amy Moores, who researches um, non-monogamy, she found that over a 10-year period recently, um, our internet searches of terms like consensual non-monogamy and polyamory have increased exponentially. So I like to say that while something like 90% of Americans um, say that monogamy is right in the way, I like to say that even though Americans are married to monogamy, we're curious about our options for sure. Out of all the feedback uh, that you've gotten from your book and, and from women that have reached out to you to share their stories, have you heard any feedback from women who have, who have had this conversation or their dialogue with their partner and like what the outcome of the conversation was? Yeah, dozens. I've heard from dozens of women who said, after I read your book or heard you on Dan Savage or um, on I Do or whatever, um, they've said, I... I decided to have this conversation and most of them have been so pleasantly surprised um, because they've, you know, they've been wanting to have the conversation for so long. So I think that it, the women that I hear from tell me, I felt freed to have this conversation and it went so much better than I imagined. Um, One woman, I heard from one woman very recently um, who has a disability and she felt uh, inhibited. She she felt that she had, like so many women I hear from, she told me that she felt that she had an unusually high libido. And then that kind of uh, crossed over with her recently becoming disabled, that she really didn't feel entitled to sexual pleasure, let alone variety and novelty and adventure. And she told me that she now um, opened a conversation about that and that it's been really good for her and for her partnership. So I just live for um, communications like that and and for hearing that um, women are starting to claim sexual autonomy as one of their rights. You know, we talk about closing the income gap Um, We talk about closing um, the gap in political representation. Um, We talk about believing that women deserve equal pay and equal opportunities. But we're only starting to get to the place where we accept 
sexual autonomy is something that women have a right to. Um, so Lori Mintz talks about the pleasure gap and the orgasm gap. And um, um, Debbie Herbinick talks about the everything gap. Um, she talks about how when it comes to sexuality, there are just these massive gaps between female and male experience. For example, um, you know, something like five times more women have reported having had painful sex uh, than men have. Um, more than twice as many women as men uh, said they had sex when they didn't want to. Um, so many more women described sex as a scary experience than men did. And men and women, what they considered a scary sexual experience was so different. Women described being choked, being sexually assaulted, um, you know, asking a partner to stop and he didn't. Whereas men described a scary experience as the condom broke or they realized that the person they were having sex with might've had sex with a friend of theirs the previous day. Um, there were these huge gaps in male and female experiences of sex that Debbie Herbinick calls the everything gap. Um, but we need to close the gap of sexual autonomy and, and feeling sexually entitled. And I, I hope that we're getting there. I hope we're getting closer. And I hope that part of it will be women not feeling like uh, they're obliged to be monogamous if they don't want to be. And if they want to be, feeling entitled to that as well. But we need uh, to get women and men, um, you know, feeling equal in in terms of healthy sexual entitlement. I always say that I, I want to thank straight men and gay men alike for providing a great model of what healthy sexual entitlement can look like letting women see that I, I want us to, I want us to learn from the straight men and the gay men in our lives who have a healthy sense of sexual entitlement, that it's part of our overall health. I think we're on our way to closing that gap because of the work that you're doing. And we're just happy to be able to have you on the show to share it with our listeners. And, and it's an exciting time for, I know it, it probably feels like every time uh, every generation feels like they're in the time where there's these big shifts. <laughs> it kind of feels that way. And in some ways, yeah. I'm sure it's true. But with the internet, with podcasting, the dissemination of information, um, it feels like we're changing the conversation because I follow it a lot. It's really interesting to me. And it's changed the way Sarah and I have communicated and had within our relationship and these new ideas that we would have probably never been exposed to or thought that they were bad and being able to have the research and understand that a lot of other people are going through it. And then to me, the important thing and what I always encourage our listeners to do is to take this information and then talk with your partner. If you're single, take it into your dating life. But if you're in a relationship to have the conversation, just even if you don't necessarily not necessarily agree but don't feel that way like you're happy not being promiscuous you're happy in your monogamous relationship just to have that conversation is a valuable thing to to bring you closer to your partner to have this open communication i i couldn't agree with you more i mean back to what we're talking about you know we have the information let's get it to people and then let's have people particularly women feel entitled to have a conversation about monogamy rather than just presume it as a baseline. Um, if we get to a point in our culture where women are not presuming that they, that monogamy is the baseline that they have to deliver and have if they don't want to, if they want to great. Um, but I think that if we, if we get couples having these conversations, um, people are going to be, thriving in their relationships, even if they don't change anything, they're going to be thriving because they're communicating. For a lot of couples, just talking about the possibility of non-monogamy is exciting enough for them um, to spark them feeling really attracted to each other again. So um, having a conversation, if it's physically safe for you, which I pray that it is, um, more, more power to that. 
Well, Wednesday, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been very enlightening for Chase and I, and I know it will for all of our listeners. So let's wrap up today's interview by having you tell our listeners where they can find you online, and then we'll say goodbye. Thank you. You can find me on Instagram. I'm Wednesday Martin PhD on Instagram and on Twitter. I'm Wednesday Martin and um, I'm not on Facebook very much. I do have a website, wednesdaymartin.com and there's a blog on there and I write something new every couple of weeks. So I hope people um, will have a look and have a read and be in touch. Well, we will have the links to all of those resources on our website and in our show notes so our listeners know they can check it out and find you there. And again, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me and for everything you do, Chase and Sarah. I appreciate it. Hi, guys. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, all the links are in the show notes page, as well as on the podcast description. And while you're on our website, we encourage you guys to check out our 14-day happy couple challenge. We send you an email for 14 days with simple, doable challenges to help strengthen and improve your relationship. And on our website, we also have a bunch of free resources for your relationship. So we encourage you to check those out. Uh, We also have our love tribe on Facebook. Uh, We encourage you guys to join the tribe and uh, be there for support for each other. If you have questions or just need some relationship advice, we are all here for each other. Um, The group has grown to almost a thousand people um, and we love it. So we hope you guys join that. You can go to Facebook, Love Tribe Fam, and you'll find us right there. And if you are interested in learning more about our flagship course, Spark My Relationship, we hope you guys check it out. We have a special offer that is only for podcast listeners. So you can go to sparkmyrelationship.com slash unlock and you can unlock that special offer and learn more as always thank you guys so much and we'll see you next week you are listening to a pleasure podcast For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com.